right. Welcome back to Art Holes, everybody. My name is Michael Anthony, and this is the podcast about art and art history with somebody who truly has no business with an art history podcast. I hope everybody is happy and healthy and ready to get back to the absolute ridiculousness of this story. This is going to be an interesting episode. This is when we start to get a sense of who Caravaggio was as a person. We've had snippets so far, but a lot of this has been crafting the world around him and using indirect evidence to construct the outline of who he was, and so far, he's kind of a douche. And in this episode, that personality is going to crystallize a bit more, and there's a few reasons for that. First, court records. Spoiler alert, he's going to get into a bunch of trouble moving forward. And the other reason is, he's just surrounded by more historically significant people whose histories are more likely to be taken down at some point. And within that more remembered group of people in Rome, the cardinals, the artists, the elite bougie people, it's going to start getting tough for them to not form some sort of opinion on who this guy was. People had thoughts, and they were unconcerned with them being recorded in history. So let's dive back into our story. Caravaggio has had an interesting journey so far, and consequently so have we. We've traipsed through Catholic history, European history, the plague, a possible murder, and a bunch of baby Jesus limbs with lengths of a varying degree of weirdness. And within all that, we've learned about Caravaggio, who started out without any discernible artistic abilities or being seen as special in any way. And then all of a sudden, he heads down this bold and inventive path that's resulted in some new and daring art, and some of which borders on counter-reformation porn, and some of which is just about fraud. And all of this has brought Caravaggio into the gorgeous home and property that's owned by the powerful Medici family, who were aligned with France in the French and Spanish power struggles, and is currently occupied by influential Cardinal Francesco Del Monte. Between Costanza Colonna as his guardian angel and now the Medicis, Caravaggio is in an incredibly envious position right now. And we know from last episode who Del Monte is and how he got to Rome. But there are outstanding questions about how Del Monte is peddling his influence now. What are his daily activities and what kind of environment did Caravaggio find himself in? Which are questions that have answers that are cause for debate, and it depends on whether or not you ask the Spanish or the French. As a comparison, Del Monte was a much more liberal and renaissance-oriented cardinal than Carlo Borromeo. Those two guys were completely opposite. And Del Monte grew up loving the humanities, science, music, and the arts. And even though he was a cardinal, he was much more of an intellectual and loved to support the creative and secular fields. And it wasn't just art. Patronizing and fostering musicians and singers was also incredibly important to the church because they really wanted religious music to go along with the art. So even at a time when the church is at its most militant, there's still a place for a more liberal cardinal if you can get the church what they needed, and they needed music. The papal choir and the regional and local choirs, they were another way for the church to bring glory to God and help people pray, but they were also a way to attract and retain the attention of worshipers. You can't just force people to sit in a stifling room and pray. It gets incredibly boring. And even with souls at stake, you can't stop people's minds from wandering. It's an innately human quality that even Jesus can't overcome. You have to make it fun and interesting. You need to put on a little show, a little concert maybe, and then when people learn the words, they can sing along. It's like karaoke with Jesus, and then there's beautiful art to look at. Which is, it's kind of an interesting concept when you break it down. The notion that the church wanted art and music, it's an appreciation of the human condition and just kind of what we are as a species. 
when you have faith in something, from what I'm told, and it's not just belief in Jesus or belief in the crucifixion and the resurrection, these people have faith. It's the understanding that they're willing to risk belief in the face of no evidence. It's an understanding that it's arrogant for us as flawed humans to think that we can understand how existence came to be. And then there's a bunch of rules and regulations, and if you knowingly fuck up, your soul is at risk. And I feel like that's why people with faith understand the power in that. It's the ultimate sacrifice for the ultimate risk without having proof. But people also get bored as shit, which is a concept that heathens like me understand. So yeah, yeah, an eternity in hell, I get it. But it's Sunday, it's super nice outside. So even when we're staring into the oblivion of timeless pain and torment of going to hell, the church knows we still need art and music to stay interested. And there's something weirdly human and cool about that. So if you're a cardinal who wants to raise his profile with the church and this area that the power structure needs just so happens to be where your interests lie, then you want to be the one that the church relies on to provide it. It's a natural fit for Del Monte. Plus, it also gives him clout with his secular friends, because he could have his artists paint something for them or have his musicians and singers perform at their events. He's the guy who brings the fun. So it wasn't just Caravaggio who lived at Del Monte's. There were a number of young men, talented young men, who were in the arts and sciences and that lived under Del Monte's patronage. And it was well known within Rome that these young men were coming and going on a regular basis. And if you're the Spanish and you want to exert more influence with the church while throwing shade on the French-aligned religious leaders, you might be inclined to highlight this cornucopia of young men living arrangement, especially since Del Monte is fostering the more liberal contributions for what the church needs. It's an easier target to identify as not Christ-like. Of all the comings and goings of the young men in Del Monte's house, you're probably going to highlight the coming. There was a poet in Rome at the time named Teodoro Dirk von Amaden, who was apparently privy to all this. And he was in the service of Spain, and he wasn't a big fan of the cardinal, and he was doing his best to poison the well with other church leaders. And Amaden accomplished this by subtly sharing rumors that Cardinal Del Monte originally got into the good graces of Ferdinando de' Medici by setting up sexual arrangements between the Grand Duke and somebody else's wife. And he also spread the rumor that the church's prized Cardinal Del Monte was secretly gay, which is stupid that that's even a problem, and that he especially enjoyed guys on the younger side. And that part's potentially problematic, age-dependent. On Del Monte and the living arrangements that Caravaggio now found himself in, Pura Maiden, quote, He was of unusual sweetness of behavior and loved to be familiar with the youths. Not, however, for a criminal reason, but from a natural sociability. This is presumably connected with the fact that he prudently hid it before Urban was elected. When Urban was made Pope, he threw off all restrictions. In the longed-for reign, he indulged his inclinations openly, and though aged and almost blind, more a trunk than a man and therefore incapable of allure, a young man of short stature got a benefice from him." Unquote. Okay, even for that time, that level of shit-talking was thinly veiled. As we'll come to find out later in the most ridiculous way possible, libel and slander was not at all tolerated by the Counter-Reformation Church, so you had to kind of shit-talk in reverse. In being overly gracious and saying everything is innocent, a maiden is blatantly saying that if Del Monte isn't having sex with the boys who live with him right now, it's because he's too old and likes to just have some suppleness around for ambiance, and we can only assume that he was having sex with them before. 
the way a maiden presents it leaves more to the imagination in a no, no, ignore all those rumors about boy orgies kind of way. And people's imaginations are almost always more aggressive than reality. And he's anticipating that people will fill in the gaps with the worst assumptions. So while a maiden's saying that there aren't boy orgies, he clearly wants you to think Del Monte's home is just pure decadent sin and nonstop boy orgies with some snack and wine breaks mixed in. And as a general strategy, it totally makes sense. It behooves a Spanish-backed poet to present Del Monte's home as a bacchanalian sex den of young artists and musicians to sway the current pope. And it was easier to talk shit on Pope Urban instead of the current pope because Urban died 12 days after he was ordained. So it was safe. You're not criticizing the current pope, but you're putting him on notice about what happens when they don't enforce rules like they're supposed to. The French get drunk and then sexually uncontrollable. It was a very A to B message. Everyone should have a hobby, don't you think? Man is making love. You may call me streetcar because of my desire for... This was as much about political and social maneuvering as it was about art and music, and ostensibly Jesus was involved in here somewhere. But that was only how the Spanish were phrasing things. The French and the Medici contingent in Rome, they had a completely different perspective on what was happening at the property. One of Del Monte's close friends at the time and frequent guest of the house was a guy named Emilio de Cavalieri, who was a singer, musician, and composer. And Cavalieri ends up being phenomenally important historically. He's credited as creating the first oratorio, which is a combination of a choir, soloists, and instrumentalists. And it's all wrapped up in a musical theater format with distinct characters. So I guess that's not opera, even though it sounds like an opera. It's apparently opera adjacent, and both oratorios and operas are first being created in Italy right about now. And I had no clue if you told me operas were first invented in France in 1725. I totally would have believed you. But from all of his time at Del Monte's house, Cavalieri wrote a letter to Fernando de Medici, who was likely wondering what the hell Del Monte was getting into and what all these rumors were about. I couldn't nail down a specific date on the letter, but it's from the 1590s, so right around the time of our story. Cavalieri to Fernando de Medici, quote, Del Monte amazes me in regard to spending that he can live on what he has and do it so honorably. It is true, for his clothing, he does not care to spend. His coach is also the first he has ever had. He makes the best of what he has. The mouths he feeds in all don't amount to 50. He doesn't keep horses or gentlemen, but his servants are treated well and given good meals. All this is seen through your highness's favor of a beautiful home. He formally receives at table in the morning, and he is courted by more Romans than cardinals for his great trafficking, which is all honest. He is not involved in important transactions, and those who come do so only to visit. I have made this speech so that you will know the truth." Unquote. Again, in not 1590-speak, he's not spending a bunch of money, not plowing through young boys or hosting other cardinals to plow through young boys. He isn't fucking up your house, and he's keeping his head down and representing you and the church well. Trust me. This is an absolutely glowing endorsement of Del Monte that is in stark contrast to the image that a maiden creates of a floor just constantly slick with bodily fluids. But Cavalieri and Del Monte were friends. They worked together quite a bit on the music side of Del Monte's patronage, and all of the religious and secular leaders in Rome would host these giant parties with wine and food and musicians running around everywhere. It was Cavalieri, Del Monte, that cardinal nephew, Aldo Brandini from last episode, who was hanging out with Del Monte and the unnamed courtesans, quote-unquote, listening to music. 
and they were having an absolute ball, and they competed with each other to see who could find the best singers and who could collect the best musical instruments, and the Cardinals would join in and sing with the boys, and one Cardinal was said to have, quote, played and sang with much grace and feeling and had a scratchy voice. And then Del Monte would join in and sing and play the Spanish guitar, and there was a bunch of wine and loose clothing to avoid that summer Italian heat, and everybody was having a really, really nice time. But at no point was anybody blowing anybody else. So just like with a maiden's portrayal of this situation, there's an agenda here too. It really wasn't Cavalieri's best interest to paint a wonderful and innocent picture, and there's a whiff of bullshit that might be employed here to, to protect a mutually beneficial relationship and a bunch of fun. It's probably a fair assessment to say that the truth lies somewhere in the middle, and that in the Del Monte home there was a liberal approach to sexuality for the time, but it realistically wasn't an uncontrollable porn palace with a bunch of sheet laundry. When Caravaggio enters the house in 1595, he's gotta be excited about this situation and how far he's come. This isn't the country town of his birth, or the restrictive duchy of Milan under Borromeo, or even the studios of Siciliano or the Cesaris that just weren't the right fit. Caravaggio is being patronized by a guy who has his own alchemy and chemistry lab, and this guy's an intellectual, and he's fine with people getting a little weird. Which, I'm sure if you're an artist, is a great thing. It's a place that'll foster your creativity rather than trying to control it. So, Costantino Spada, the guy who set this whole thing up, he really had great instincts about the relationship, if not a full understanding of who Caravaggio was as a person and the whole concept of unintended consequences. But getting back to the music, uh, the current pope is a guy named Clement VIII, and he was looking for reforms and advancements within the papal choir at the Sistine Chapel. And he knew that Del Monte was the artsy cardinal, so Del Monte was given the position of protector of the Sistine Choir. He's going to be the one responsible for developing new music and a new sound that would move the church forward to match the new Rome. And that meant that Caravaggio was constantly surrounded by musicians, singers, and composers. And he's not just seeing music performed, he's witnessing the behind-the-scenes of how music was created on a high level, and he's seeing practice sessions, and also maybe, maybe lots and lots of sex, or no sex at all, it really depends on who you ask. And all of this, the composers, the musicians, these new musical surroundings, they all informed the first paintings that Caravaggio created when he moved into the house in 1595. The first painting that Caravaggio made in 1595 was titled The Musicians, and it was a concert genre painting. And concert genre paintings were common as of our story, but they were still relatively new. This subcategory of genre painting started in Venice around 1510, and it was a natural evolution of the artistic and musical developments of the time. And from what I read, it was really only a matter of time before concerts and art would come together like this. It was, before this painting, usually images of small groups of musicians performing, and sometimes the crowds were included, sometimes it was just the performers, but it was a contained scene of the concert in action. Caravaggio, of course, didn't create a concert genre painting like everybody else did. And true to form, he creates something that thumbs and nose at people's expectations and what they were used to. The musicians is a behind-the-scenes image of musicians while they practice, maybe about to put on a performance, but it's not during the performance. The musician in the immediate foreground, the closest in depth, he has his back to the viewer, which is an interesting choice, and he's reading the music and possibly making changes. And he's wearing a flowy white tunic from classical times, most likely his costume for the performance. But he's so focused on the music that the tunic is casually falling off, leaving the boy half-dressed. 
and right next to him is a lute player, and he's also classically dressed, and he's tuning his instrument. And that face should look familiar at this point, because it's none other than Caravaggio's good, good friend, Mario Minitti. It's me, Mario! And his face, again, it's, it's a little flushed, and he's got that intense gaze to him, and it's probably from tuning the lute. It's a very important part of being a lutenist. And it's not at all a knowing and longing portrayal of Mario. Directly behind him in the background is a self-portrait of Caravaggio holding some sort of wind instrument, and he's got this dopey, huh, look on his face. Which, from the perspective of a realistic portrayal of a practice session, it's somebody looking up when they heard another person approaching, and you're pulling them away from what's holding their attention. So that, huh, face is something that Caravaggio probably saw often when he interrupted whatever it would be he interrupted when he walked into rooms in the property. And in the very back of the painting, the back left, is a boy that's either Cupid or it's a boy that's dressed as Cupid with wings and arrows slung over his back, and he's about to eat some grapes, so maybe a Bacchus connection in there too. Taking a step back and looking at the musicians as a whole, tonally this could be a few things, depending on whether you believe the Spanish or the French's view of Del Monte's home. It could be viewed as a celebration of the musical and artistic decadence of the Renaissance with flush face just came Mario Minetti, Cupid shooting arrows as a metaphor for romantic love between the boys, everyone is half-dressed, and the grapes are a metaphor for everyone at Del Monte's house being drunk all the time. It could also be viewed as a celebration of a cardinal who played a crucial role in the development of musical culture in Rome, and a depiction of what would have been a daily occurrence on the property. It's Caravaggio showing his appreciation for his new patron. It's a celebration of the hard work, the long hours, and all the things that are necessary to create beautiful music. And it's a thank you to Del Monte for being the one to make that all possible, and it's not at all about anyone blowing anyone else. Again, total guess because I'm not a historian, but I think it's probably a reasonably safe conclusion to think the truth lies somewhere in the middle, and the musicians is a bit of both. What this definitely was, though, was a new type of concert genre painting, the behind-the-scenes version. Just like his low-life genre paintings, nobody had done anything like this before. So now this is beginning to be a pattern. Caravaggio is now consistently and repeatedly inventing genre scenes based on how people actually live the events. If nothing else, we can say that he is a staunch humanist. He's not painting an idealized version of the concert image with the musicians at the pinnacle moment and all the colors and the light are blended. He's making these musicians human. And by humanizing, he can show that real musicians struggle with writing music, and memorizing lines, and sitting with the rest of the band trying to figure shit out. And sometimes humans get really drunk, and Cupid gets involved, and makes for some feelings, and messy relationship drama happens between band members. This is the first VH1 behind the music. Which is, and I have to be honest, an incredibly underrated show. It's uh, that and pop-up video. I'm actually not sure which one came first, but they were both great, and I'm actually pretty sure the metaphor still works with both. But 90s nostalgia aside, Caravaggio painted another music scene in, we're looking at late 1595, early 1596, called The Loop Player. This painting was commissioned for one of Del Monte's friends, and it's somewhat of a turning point in Caravaggio's career. It has elements of the art of his past and what will be the art of his future, and it's also the beginning of our discussion on testicles in this series. So let's just dive in, uh, this is about to get not cool to play at work. 
If we look back at what he's painted before, in the loop player we can see a few familiar themes and signatures. There's the presence of the fruit and the flowers, the reflections in the vase, the folded, drape-like classical shirt that's open, which we've seen before. But what we're getting now is Caravaggio evolving and appreciating the meticulousness required to capture the details that make things feel more real. This painting is starting to feel more refined. There's a crack in the lute, and you can actually see the music that the lute player is practicing, and it's music from a popular musician at the time named Jacques Arcadelt, whose music is playing in the background right now. So while those might be revisited themes, Caravaggio's finding new opportunities to refine details and make the subject that's captured feel way more like real life. The new elements to key in on this painting are his use of a plain background that lacks details, which helps focus the viewer on the lute player himself. And the other element is his use of light streaming into the room, which helps give a sense of volume to the painting. And I can't tell the volume-light-source relationship thing in this painting, but it becomes way more pronounced and obvious later as Caravaggio leans into the technique. And the model for the loop player, it's not Mario Minitti, though one historian tried to say it was. I think it's the eyebrows, but he's in the minority. The leading biographers say this is more likely a young man named Pedro Montoya. And Pedro Montoya is... Okay, this is when it starts to get a little dark. Okay, in our story, we are right at the beginning of the period of time where soloists were beginning to evolve and gain prominence in music. Before this, choirs used a collection of voices sung together to create an angelic and heavenly feel, and this stems all the way back to ancient Greece, and it's where you get that Gregorian chant style, but that was all starting to change. The singing schools in Rome that became prominent in the 3rd and 4th centuries were dedicated to training male singers, not a shocker, and for centuries, men were expected to sing, quote, in a virile manner, and not with voices shrill and artificial like the voices of women, or in a manner lascivious and nimble like actors, unquote. So for a really long time, the prevailing theory was sing like a man and everybody sing together. Then in the early Renaissance, people began some experimentation, and the liberalization of the church allowed for an emerging use of the soprano voice range. And holy shit, people realized that higher notes could be beautiful, which blew everybody's mind. And beautiful as it may be, you just can't let women start to sing in the church choir now that you want soprano voices. If you let women into the choirs, then their cycles are going to sync up and they'll start taking our jobs and stop making babies. And then maybe someday they'll want to vote and blah, 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 blah. Per Pope Clement VIII, who took this concept from Corinthians 14.34, quote, let women be silent in the churches, unquote. There was clearly only one way to resolve this. Enter the little boy soprano to the church choir, which was a brilliant solution to not an actual problem. As church choirs began using young boys for soprano parts, church music evolved past that Gregorian chant style and became more fulsome, and a whole new world was available and there were greater options for music, which is fantastic. But little boys, little boy sopranos created a new issue because they don't stay little boys forever. And for some people, that created a different problem. Because once you found yourself a kick-ass little boy soprano who could praise Jesus in song, it's a cash cow because he'd be a huge draw. Until he grew up and testosterone would be produced and his balls would drop and he'd get an Adam's apple and now he's useless. Unless... Unless you solve the problem at the source and you cut off his balls, then he'll be a little boy forever. 
Because if you castrate a boy before puberty, there won't be the testosterone required to transform his larynx, and he'd retain his prepubescent vocal range. Eureka! It's another solution to not a real problem. Instead of letting women sing, because who knows what kind of fallout that would cause, we'll just cut the balls off of children. The age range to effectively castrate a child, which is a statement I never in my life thought I would make, and hopefully I'll never make again, was roughly between the ages of 9 and 11 years old. But it trended towards 9 because even the slightest bit of testosterone could mess with the effectiveness. And by effectiveness, I'm really using the most narrow definition of the word, and it's just covered in sarcasm and disdain, but it's a word we have to use nonetheless. These young boys who were castrated for song were called the castrati. And the castrati were oftentimes orphans, but they also tended to be children of destitute parents who were looking for a stream of income so they could feed themselves and get out of poverty. So the castration of children tended to disproportionately affect the poor, because, and I feel like I say this all the time, everybody is terrible. Which, of course, raises the next and one of the more obvious and important questions. Who in their right mind would cut the testicles off of a child? But not just one child, like as a profession, the thing you do to put food on the table. There weren't surgeons as we know them until the late 1800s when anesthesia was developed. You couldn't just root around long-term in somebody else's body. It was incredibly painful. Plus, people didn't really know why you'd need to perform a surgery. We weren't exactly on top of what caused issues that would necessitate cutting into the body. Until the 19th century, the medical profession thought humors were the cause of disease. The humors being black bile, phlegm, blood, and yellow bile. And those humors needed to be balanced, including understanding how astrological and zodiac signs affected the humors. We were straight up idiots as a species. There was a doctor in the 10th century during the Islamic Golden Age named Al-Zarawi who was kind of an effective surgeon, and he was trying to build a knowledge base on how and when to effectively perform surgery. But Europe wasn't exactly taking advice from Muslims during the Middle Ages. In Europe, it was a little more janky. Surgery was thought of more like a blue-collar trade and wasn't considered on the same level as other doctors. They were thought of almost more like blacksmiths. They had apprentices who would learn on the job by watching, and I guess trial and error, and like most other trades, the people who had the tools would have the jobs, and the people who had the sharp tools were barbers who had knives and razors. Which paved the way for the profession of barber surgeon that evolved in Europe. Two words, hyphenated, barber surgeon, just like cardinal nephew. This was an awful time to be alive. Most of the barber-surgeon practice was lancing boils, digging out ingrown toenails, sewing up knife wounds, and in extreme cases, cutting off limbs from battlefield injuries. So it really was a very mechanical and not too complicated, if not incredibly unclean of a process. It's just, it's some guy finishing a sandwich and then wiping a knife he just used to cut that sandwich across a dirty apron and then going, all right, let's get that toe off you before you take the rot, and then they send you on your way. Hopefully, not to die of infection after, because they didn't have great disinfectants for the equipment, clean gauze for wrapping, and they certainly didn't have antibiotics for the wounds. But it was better than dying. Except, and maybe I'm pointing out the obvious here, but castration wasn't exactly an emergency battlefield procedure, so it was a little bit different of a calculus. And to give some modicum of credit where it's due, not all barber surgeons liked the idea of cutting the balls off of children, so castration was often done by some of the more unsavory barber surgeons. 
The more common technique was to give the boys opium and then bathe them in milk, and who knows the theory behind that one unless there's a milk humor I'm not aware of, and then they'd press down on the boys' carotid arteries in their necks until they passed out from lack of blood flow to the brain, also known as strangulation. This is absolutely bananas, and then they would open up the scrotum, remove the testicles, and try like hell to stop the bleeding. A lot of the boys, I mean, look, sometimes surgery goes wrong, especially when it's a shitty back-alley barber-surgeon situation, and a lot of the boys bled to death, and some died later from infection. If the boys survived, if, if the boys survived, it was just the beginning. They would then undergo intense training and studying in a high-stakes competition to be in a church choir. If they didn't make it, well, now they had to figure something else out, but they were limited in their options, and now they were treated like societal fringe people. A failed castrati was also a problem for the church, but for less personal reasons. It was a waste of money and time, and they never knew who would stay a good singer. Maybe the procedure was done too late. Lots of stuff could go wrong, even if the boys survived, so they needed a solid applicant pool. To make sure they had the numbers to be choosy, as many as four to 5,000 Italian boys were castrated every year at the height of the use of the castrati. And I know this whole section on systemic castration of children was as upsetting as the Inquisition torture segment of episode one. So as another palate cleanser, here's a bunch of cats saying no. The castrati eventually fell out of favor as people's sense of goddamn human decency evolved, but not right away. The Vatican and Sistine Chapel continued to use castrati until 1903 when the practice was banned, so they switched back to their revolving door of little boys. Eventually, and it was only going to be a matter of time, eventually the gender barrier was broken and women were allowed to sing in the choir at the Sistine Chapel. In 2017... There's only one surviving recording of a castrati singer, the last confirmed castrati, Alessandro Moreschi, who clearly I'm going to make you listen to now. And maybe I'm biased, but that does not sound like it was worth the removal of one set of testicles, let alone hundreds of thousands. Pope Clement VIII, the Pope who recently assigned Del Monte as protector of the Sistine Choir and the one who wants women to be quiet in church, he was thrilled at the idea of castrati and said they had, quote, angel voices. So you could bet your ass that when Del Monte was restructuring the choir, there were gonna be castrati involved. Which finally brings us back to the entire reason for that tangent. One of the hormonal side effects of castrating children before puberty, besides immediately turning you into a monster of a human being, was that they were prone to gaining and holding weight, especially in their faces. And Pedro Montoya, the model for the lute player, he has a noticeably rounder face than the models in Caravaggio's other paintings. And in addition to the puffy cheeks and the hairless and porcelain skin tone, there's an indication in the music on the table. There's a closed book titled Bassus, or Basis, and that book being closed while another is open might be an allusion to the singer not being able to hit those low notes. 
Because poor, poor Pedro was one of the castrati singers that Del Monte was developing, and he had his testicles removed, likely, and it's weird that we can narrow this down, between the ages of 9 and 11. So the lute player is a celebration not only of the growing idea of the soloist, but it was a nod to Del Monte as a musical producer and also a procurer of castrati talent. And I gotta be honest, not a big fan of this painting. But Caravaggio was extremely proud of the lute player. And according to that early biographer who we can't talk about yet, Caravaggio considered this to be his best painting yet. And as Caravaggio was settling in and getting used to his new surroundings, the castrati, the weird parties, and who knows what else, Del Monte was exposing him to other cardinals and his more powerful friends. And Del Monte knew that he had someone special on his hands who would brag about Caravaggio. And as that happened, his patronage grew. And that didn't at all stop Caravaggio from being an absolute pain in the ass and probably contributed to it. We can get a sense that even Del Monte was getting annoyed from a letter that he wrote to one of his friends who was expecting paintings in 1596 about a delay in their delivery, quote, I am dealing with persons with whom I have to arm myself with patience. There's one more painting that I want to talk about from this early time at Del Monte's, so 1595 to 1596-ish, and then we have to get to some of Caravaggio's activities that he was getting into after he was done with work. And I completely lost thread that this might be the first series for some listeners. So if you're new to the show, I'm not bringing up or discussing all the works completed by these artists. We just, we'd be here forever. Instead, I'm trying to highlight some of the stuff that was from important periods, things that are historically significant, or shit that I just find interesting. And this one hits all of that. In 1595-ish, Caravaggio painted his first attributable devotional painting, so he's dipping his toes in the Jesus waters, and we finally get a chance to see how he's going to tackle the big topics. And this painting is a game-changer for religious art, and it also sets up what will be Caravaggio's trademark style, and the painting is called St. Francis of Assisi in Ecstasy. During the Counter-Reformation, St. Francis was beloved and revered as probably an understatement. He was everything the church pushed Catholics to be, and was a mascot is probably a disrespectful term, but whatever, he was their mascot. Francis was a relatively recent saint. Uh, he was alive from the late 12th to early 13th centuries, and being sainted by the Pope was kind of like being inducted into the Catholic Hall of Fame for being the most Christ-like and being so Christ-like that miracles happen around you. Becoming a saint was the ultimate goal for a devout Catholic, because now that you're dead, everybody who's still alive could pray to you, even though it's a monotheistic religion and it gets a little weird, for the souls of their loved ones and to watch over them and to help out if they lost stuff. And from my admittedly not-so-sophisticated understanding of how this works, uh, you became the person or entity that people could pray to, I guess because God gets busy. So saints are delegated stuff, like helping people find their car keys. There's also St. Friard, who you could pray to if you were afraid of wasps, St. Bibiana, who's the patron saint of hangovers, and St. Julian, who is the patron saint of clowns, carnival workers, people looking for hotels while on road trips, and childless couples. There is a whole list for everyone, and it's ridiculous, and there's even a patron saint for loud explosion noises. But St. Francis was one of the top saints. When he was alive, he was the guy who started the Franciscan monks, and he traveled all over the world to preach the word of Jesus, and he revered living in poverty. He was so close to living like Jesus that one day angels descended from heaven, and in a moment of religious ecstasy, he received the first recorded, quote-unquote recorded, case of the stigmata. 
And stigmata is when the bodily wounds from the crucifixion of Jesus magically appear in the body of a person with no physical cause for the wounds. This is kind of like a Lifetime Achievement Award. The angels came down and first a hole in his side appeared, similar to when Jesus got shanked, then his hands and his feet from the nails on the cross, the, the head wounds from the crown of thorns, and no medical cures could cure Francis's wounds. He then went on tour and showed everybody the crucifixion wounds, which I'm sure didn't heal because of God and not because of some sort of MRSA infection. And eventually Francis died in 1226 as a first ballot Hall of Famer and was sainted by the Pope two years later. Saint Francis was the guy the Counter-Reformation Church wanted to champion. And if you wanted people to walk in the footsteps of Jesus and be like him, Saint Francis was the perfect guy to emulate. Someone who was so like Jesus that he could get magical Jesus wounds from angels. There is no doubt that Carlo Borromeo preached about St. Francis in Milan when Caravaggio was young, and it captured his imagination into adulthood. Caravaggio was fascinated by the idea that you could be so like Jesus that you could mystically transfigure that inner devotion into a physical manifestation of the crucifixion, based off of pure love of Jesus alone. It really was a concept that enthralled a lot of people, and it was a moment that painters had captured numerous times before, but again, not like Caravaggio did it, which brings us back to our painting St. Francis of Assisi in Ecstasy. First, just overall as an image, there's a sense of realism in this painting. And back in the tempera days, or when the Renaissance painters tried to perfectly blend with sfumato and having balance and composition, people didn't actually look like people, they looked like painted versions of a human being. But here, St. Francis looks much more like an actual person. He's got a scraggly beard, tense lines in his face, a realistic skin tone. It looks like a man who is just stabbed in the side. Even the angel looks real here. It's not the floaty-in-the-sky angel or the pudgy baby-looking angels that previous masters like Raphael would paint. This angel is standing, and the standing angel was a new invention. Nobody had ever done standing angels before. And that angel looks like he's catching St. Francis as he fell down, having recently been struck in the ribs, so it feels like the painting is a live-action scene. But there's only the side wound. There aren't the stigmata wounds on the hands and the feet, or from the crown of thorns yet. And there's a reason for that. Before this, artists painted St. Francis with the full stigmata, as if to say, See? Look, look, this is the full story. This is what happened. And the full accounting of what happened was written by a guy named St. Bonaventure a few years after the stigmata. And St. Bonaventure wrote that the side wound appeared first, and when St. Francis realized what was happening, the angel disappeared back to heaven, and that's when the hand and feet wounds appeared. There was a, a series of events. This version, Caravaggio's depiction, it includes the angel before it floats away, and it includes the side wound but not the hand and feet wounds. It shows that Caravaggio was deeply familiar with the specifics of the event as described by St. Bonaventure, and he painted a dramatic scene as it was happening. This was a, a realistic and intellectual approach mid-stigmata and people freaked out. This was a counter-reformation gasm. And then there's the lighting. The painting is dark, and there's an oily blackness in the background, and it just has an overall dark tone to it. Except for a singular and bright light source from slightly overhead, of a light from heaven maybe, and it's illuminating the only part of the scene that matters. If chiaroscura is the contrast between light and dark in a painting that Renaissance painters tried to perfect, this abandons all attempts to balance and blend light. And the result is just an incredibly dramatic image. 
And everybody who saw it at the time knew this was different, that this was a new approach to painting and depicting images, and people were excited. This is exactly the type of painting that the church would love. It's the thing that they asked for but didn't really know they were asking for it. It's the, the beginning of Caravaggio taking the church's desires quite literally. The new rules for religious art that came out of the Edict of Milan included pushing painters to adopt a new artistic theory for painting. So it wasn't just don't include anything profane or don't put extra shit in the painting if it's not how the Bible mentioned it. What the church now wanted when displaying images from the past, they wanted the artist to make them look like they were from the present. So the saints were supposed to be portrayed as somebody who could be alive right now. It was a way to show congregants that martyrdom was still possible. For the people who saw Caravaggio's St. Francis painting when it was created hundreds of years before photography was invented, they were blown away. For them, that painting looked like a dude who got the stigmata yesterday. This was an image of a flesh and blood person. This is somebody who you might know, who you could be. This painting made Catholicism alive, and it was a groundbreaking piece of Catholic art. It was also a self-portrait of Caravaggio, which was a profoundly narcissistic decision. He was so fascinated by the stigmata that he painted his face onto St. Francis's image. This is a bold move for somebody who maybe isn't living as Christ-like as he could be. But unsurprisingly, it didn't matter. Word was out on Caravaggio, this painting did its job. He was gaining the reputation with the power brokers in Rome as somebody who might bring the church into the next century artistically. And he was also a person who might stab you. And not just the old stabbings. In July of 1597, there was an incident. A man named Pietro Paolo, who was the apprentice of a barber surgeon named Luca, was seriously injured after being stabbed during a fight at the Villa della Scrofa. This was not an abnormal event and was emblematic of the violent crime that was pervasive in Rome at the time. People were getting stabbed and slashed regularly. Just like in Milan, this is a natural result of a city full of ambitious, single, and testosterone-fueled young men. Eventually, somebody's going to get stabbed. The church and the Spiri, the papal police, they realized that violence was always going to be quick to break out and that people's dispute resolution skills just weren't that spectacular. So to curb the worst results when disagreements inevitably went south, they broadly prohibited people from carrying weapons, including those Pugnello daggers and swords. So while stabbing someone was a crime, it was also indicative of someone being armed in public, which I got the sense was almost more important to the Spiri. And this particular stabbing, uh, and by default, carrying a weapon publicly, needs to be fleshed out a bit. Details are a little sketchy, and it's not because it's 500 years ago. We're going to have to work within the margins on this one. When Pietro Paolo got stabbed, the Spiri found out and asked him who did it, and he won't say a thing. He doesn't say what caused the fight, won't say who stabbed him, nothing. And the police aren't thrilled with Pietro Paolo's lack of cooperation, so they put him in prison, and he still wouldn't talk. So now the Spiri are pissed, because somebody needs to be held accountable for this stabbing and being armed in public, and Pietro Paolo is not playing ball. The only evidence the Spiri had was a black cloak and three people that were seen at the Villa della Scrofa around this time. Those three people were Prospero Orsi, Costantino Spada, and an artist named Michelangelo Marisi de Caravaggio. Not a great start, he's already one of only three suspects. In the cloak, it was a very specific black cloak called a Ferraiulo, F-E-R-R-A-I-U-O-L-O, Ferraiulo. I fucking hate that word, but it's a very specific black cloak with iron clasps in front. 
And that very specific black cloak was given to Pietro Paolo that day by his boss, Luca, the barber surgeon. And after the attack, when it fell on the ground, somebody brought it right back to Luca's shop. So, whoever stabbed Pietro Paolo, or was one of the other two there, knew who Pietro Paolo was, knew who his boss was, and knew exactly where Luca's barber shop slash hospital, I guess, I don't know, he knew where that was located. So the Spiri went right to Luca and asked if he had the cloak, which he did, and then they asked him who brought it back, and Luca said it was a painter, but he didn't remember the painter's name, and the Spiri are obviously not buying that answer. Uh, Luca, per handwritten notes from the notary of the court, quote, This painter is a stocky young man, about 20 or 25 years old, with a thin black beard, thick eyebrows, and black eyes, who goes dressed all in black in a rather disorderly fashion, wearing black hose that is a little threadbare, and who has a thick head of hair long over his forehead. Unquote. And if you look at St. Francis and that sketched image I posted from episode one, this person is starting to sound familiar. Luca knows exactly who this is. He's even dressed all shoddily, like the Cesaris mentioned. Then, out of nowhere, Luca just clams up. He denies that the cloak even belonged to Pietro Paolo, and the police aren't getting anywhere. So they decided to drag in the people who were said to be present at the time of the stabbing. You know, the likely suspects. And first up is Costantino Spada. Spada said that Caravaggio and Prospero Orsi came over to his place. They said they were hungry and asked if he wanted to get some dinner. He'd already eaten, but he went with them anyway because he wanted to check out the Tavern of the Wolf. After dinner, as they were leaving the tavern, Spada, quote, We all heard someone coming towards us from the Piazza San Luigi, yelling, Ahi! Ahi! Unquote. The rest of Spada's testimony becomes utterly useless, and he was clearly being evasive. He said he didn't have his glasses on, so he didn't know how tall the guy was, didn't know anything about a cloak, if the guy had a hat on or not, just, I didn't see shit. So the Spiri Dragon Prospero Orsi. They think they're going to get something out of him now. This is like every episode of Law & Order. Same thing from Orsi. Having dinner with the boys, some guy comes out of nowhere with, as per Orsi, quote, Screams and laments. Someone saying, Oh him, oh him, and other words, unquote. Unsurprisingly, the rest of his testimony becomes useless. Not that that first part had any real value to it, but Orsi said he was far away, there wasn't enough streetlight, and he just couldn't see anything. So the Spiri take a different tact. They ask Orsi if any of the three of them were armed. If they can't get an arrest on the stabbing, maybe they can get someone on carrying a sword. Orsi, quote, Costantino and I were not carrying weapons of any kind. Caravaggio was the only one to carry a sword because he is in the service of Cardinal Del Monte. Before, he used to carry it by day. Now he only carries it sometimes when he goes out at night. Unquote. So now we have two of Caravaggio's own friends testifying that he was not only at the scene, but one of them said he was the only person there who was armed. Outside of a confession, you really can't get much more probable cause for Caravaggio's arrest. He is now 100% the most likely suspect. The matter was promptly dropped and no charges were brought. Caravaggio wasn't even taken in for questioning. Which is insane, because he didn't for sure stab Pietro Paolo, but I mean, he stabbed Pietro Paolo. But nobody wanted to go after one of Del Monte's guys, it just wasn't worth the risk. 
And on top of that, being under Del Monte's protection meant that even carrying a sword was allowable. It didn't matter that he wasn't part of Del Monte's security. If you were employed by a cardinal, you could carry a sword whenever you wanted. It makes no sense. This is not exactly the lesson you want somebody like Caravaggio learning, that he won't even be brought in for questioning for a stabbing when he is the number one suspect. The other major takeaway, besides the empowerment of somebody who doesn't need to be more empowered, is the description of Caravaggio's clothing, and it's really the last time we'll need to talk about it. If you're ever wondering what Caravaggio is wearing, particularly at night, it is all black. Black shoes, black stockings, black pants, shirt, coat, hat, he is all in black. This was a common outfit back then for those who wanted to blend in at night and lose people easily in the shadows when there was only torches to light alleys. He's wearing urban camouflage. So he is now dressing as if he wants to get away with stabbings whenever he needs to. At the end of 1597, Caravaggio drew more blood, but this time it was artistically with an awesome painting that I actually got to see in person last year. It's called Medusa. It's a shockingly realistic image of a beheaded Medusa against this brilliant green background and blood is spurting everywhere. This was as close to capturing the image of a decapitated person that you could get back then. Even Medusa's gums are detailed. The painting was then mounted on a ceremonial shield, and it's absolutely stunning to see in person, and kinda gross. He also revisited a topic that he painted earlier in his time in Rome, which also requires us to revisit one of his oldest personal relationships. Sometime between 1597 and 1598, Caravaggio painted another version of the drunken sex god Bacchus for Cardinal Del Monte, only this time it had more of a boy with a basket of fruit feel to it, but much more refined and advanced. The face of this Bacchus is really flushed and half-dressed with his hand on the tie of his robe and insinuating that he's about to unwrap himself as a gift to the viewer, and there's dirt all over Bacchus's hands as if he was just in the field tending to his grapes. But now he's back from the fields, and he's hot and swirling the wine slowly around the glass, and he's a little drunk, and you, you really can't misinterpret those eyes. You have an absolutely breathtaking hiney. I mean, that thing is good. I want to be friends with it. So Bacchus, and before that, the Greek god Dionysus, which is it's really the same thing, I guess, they were often depicted in classical times, but they came back into style again during the Renaissance, which makes sense. Of the numerous people who used Bacchus as a subject, some really stood out, and it's mostly Michelangelo's sculpture and a few paintings by Titian, but these were really the depictions that were used as the standard. So for Caravaggio to paint Bacchus twice, he is taking on those artists directly. And if you go after the crown, you can't miss. And he doesn't miss because he's not really going after those artists directly. He's going after people's understandings of what a sex god would actually look like. The first time he painted Bacchus, it was kind of hilarious and it was self-effacing and it was that eh, eh. Just But this version is different. Caravaggio is getting to the core of what the god of wine and sex was, somebody who's not afraid to get a little drunk and a little dirty. And the model for this realistic, sensual, and borderline sinful portrayal, I mean, you can see it in those eyes and the care given to capturing that delightful collarbone, it's Mario Minetti. Mamma mia! Del Monte likely commissioned this painting as a gift for the Grand Duke, his quasi-boss, but apparently Ferdinando de' Medici wasn't a fan of the rawness and tone, and he stored this painting away. 
And after it was stored, it wasn't discovered again until 1913 when someone was rooting around the basement in the Uffizi Gallery in Florence, and the painting hadn't even been catalogued or framed yet. A few months after Caravaggio painted Mario as Bacchus, on May 4th, 1598, he's arrested for carrying a sword without a license, and after a night in jail, the charges are dropped when it's confirmed that he's employed by Del Monte. As Caravaggio found success, he was starting to evolve as a person, and not necessarily towards something better. He was freely wandering around Rome, constantly armed, being a straight-up asshole. There was a Dutch painter in Rome at the time named Carol van Mander, who really captured who Caravaggio was and what he was doing. Van Mander, quote, There is a certain Michelangelo of Caravaggio who is doing remarkable things in Rome. He has risen from poverty through his industry and by tackling and accepting everything with courage, as some people do who refuse to be held down through timidity, but who advance themselves candidly and fearlessly and who boldly pursue gain. But again, there is chaff, to wit that he does not pursue his studies steadfastly, so that after a fortnight work he will swagger about for a month or two, with his sword at his side and with a servant following him, ever ready to engage in a fight or argument, with the result that it is impossible to get along with him." Unquote. So during the day he's a brilliant painter who's breaking new ground even though he's not giving it his all, and at night he's wearing all black, picking fights and stabbing people. He is basically asshole Batman. They may be drinkers, Robin, but they're also human beings. And as you'd expect, not everybody in his life was on board with Caravaggio's behavior, and he's starting to lose some of the people closest to him. Specifically, Mario Minitti. Mario Minitti was not cool with who Caravaggio was becoming, and that's Caravaggio's buddy from as soon as he got to Rome. It's really the first and maybe only friend in this story so far that we can reasonably conclude had a close relationship with Caravaggio, for a few reasons, but there is a real connection there. It was with Mario that the two of them tried to not starve to death on the horrifying streets of Rome or get dysentery or die of the literal plague. And they schlepped through a shitty job helping Lorenzo Siciliano paint and sell cheap portraits of Cicero to religious tourists and workers, sharing with each other their ambitions and their dreams of greatness. And I feel like the flip side of sharing your ambitions and dreams is trust. It's entrusting someone with the thing deep down you feel you're capable of achieving in all the insecurities that you have about opening yourself up to criticism that that dream is just not accomplishable. It's hard to gauge emotion and relationships from 500 years ago. We're dealing with flashes and snippets of history and the biographers have to reconstruct events as best they can. But these were people, and people aren't just a series of events, even if the events are kind of hilarious sometimes, and there's a keeper of the monkey, and, and I'm kind of a dick and probably more flippant about things than I should be. But these were real emotions happening to real human beings. With Jackson, it was way easier. The biographers, especially Stephen Nyfa and Gregory Whitesmith, gave so much color and detail we could have had 20 episodes and still left stuff out. We knew how much Lee resented Stella and why. We knew about Jackson's issues with Leroy, Sandy, alcohol. We were up to our eyeballs in his addictions, his demons, his crimes, and his stuff with P. But here we're sort of feeling our way around in the dark a bit. Imagine what would happen if Caravaggio did succeed. Everybody in Rome was going to find out that Caravaggio thought Mario had some luscious, luscious figs. And if they got their way, these paintings would go down in history, which they did. 
Mario was cool with being painted all flush-faced and boozed up with bedroom eyes at a place and time when maybe it wasn't okay to be so public about another male painter having seen that gaze before. And just think of how much time they spent together as artist and model, and it wasn't just Boy with a Basket of Fruit, Bacchus, the musicians, and maybe Boy Bitten by a Lizard. It's now believed that Mario was the model for the young man in the gypsy fortune teller. Go spend conservatively 90 hours alone with your best friend and not be able to move. That conversation will go new places no matter how well you know each other. Mario Minetti's biographer wrote that eventually Mario had to abandon Caravaggio around this time. Not dial things back, abandon him. Quote, He settled down and got married because he found the turbulent adventures of his friend too much to stomach. Unquote. He had to break off his relationship with Caravaggio and settle down and get married, quote, because, cause and effect. There is a lot of subtext in that statement, and it was a decision point so important in Mario's life that it made it into his biography. This is some Brokeback Mountain kind of love, and, well, I guess Ennis didn't really stab a bunch of people, but it's forbidden, and now it is too tumultuous. The closest person in Caravaggio's life has said he's had enough. Mario is hurt. And this isn't the Michelangelo that he knew, and it's no longer good for Mario, and he wants out. But if you're Caravaggio and the type of person that he was, you can't let this stop you. If the people who care about you think you're going down the wrong path to the point where they have to disengage with you, you're not supposed to self-reflect and wonder why you're pushing people away. You have to find people who are as big, if not bigger, assholes than you so you don't have to change or grow which is right around the time that Orazio Gentileschi, Honorio Longhi, and Felide Melandroni become part of Caravaggio's life. And I know it's annoying to try to remember all these old Italian names, but we're going to be talking about these three dildos a lot. Orazio Gentileschi and Honorio Longhi were part of a group of, quote, mainly lusty young fellows, painters, and swordsmen who had as their motto, Nuspe nec metu, unquote. That motto translated is, without hope or fear, which is not good. You really want people to have one of those. Hope or fear, maybe both is fine. Neither of them, not a good thing. Orazio Gentileschi was described by another painter at the time, quote, He is a person of such strange manners and a way of life and such temperament that one can neither get on nor deal with him, unquote. And Honorio Longhi, who had his own brother put in prison for not paying a bill and had a long history of violence, characterized himself in court one time. Quote, I am a gentleman and I don't care about anything. I just eat and drink. Unquote. And then there's Felide Melandroni. And honestly, I think we're going to have to save her for next episode. But each of these three are assholes in their own right and together with Caravaggio will combine to be a sum greater than the parts. So thank you so much for listening. If you're still here and plan on listening to the next episode, you are my kind of person. And you're probably not judging me for being so excited to talk about this downward spiral of violence we've started. So thanks again. And if you want to help out the show and you haven't done so yet, please head to the Apple Podcast app. It's the purple icon, the weeble casually wearing a sombrero, and rate and review. Five stars would be wonderful, and it doesn't matter what you put in there. You could just, I don't know, put the name of your favorite character so far. So that's all I've got. Uh, You all are awesome. Take care, and I will talk to you later.